Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. A little bit later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Dan Worth about how one school responded to a cybersecurity attack to make sure it could never happen again. But first, we'll be covering the first of the NEU's seven planned strike days earlier this week, what happened on the day, how schools were affected, and what might happen next. Fighting for the future of state education here, not just a pay rise. And we're going on strike because the crisis in the teaching profession. A big step forward with the team to pay us fairly for the very hard work that we do. Well, we're all teachers and we're here to tell the government they need to do more for schools. There's a crisis of recruitment in schools. There's also a crisis of retention as well. We are losing good staff uh, left, right and centre. Uh, and we can't recruit, and the, a big factor in that, not the only factor, but a major factor, is the erosion of teachers' pay over the last 12 years, and particularly this year. What do you say when Gillian Keegan says you're letting children down, especially after the pandemic? Well, today, isn't it? We're not letting children down. That's really making light of what we've been doing. Teachers are in really early in the morning, making resources, differentiating, creating revision plans, putting on boosters, none of which is paid. We're really sympathetic to parents who've had to struggle today. We, we understand how difficult it is when teachers take strike action, and we'd far rather be in the classroom, but we know how important this is. None of us want to be on strike. None of us want to be out of the classroom. But we know that we have to do this in order for students' education to embrace. It's short-term pain for long-term gain. I think we, we ultimately do know that today we are costing a day of education. But if things carry on the way that they are currently going, then it's going to cost a lot more in the future. Joining me now are reporters Matilda Martin. Hi, Matilda. Hi, Joshua. And Callum Mason. Hi, Callum. Hi, uh, you're right. Yeah, all good, thanks. Matilda, let's start with you because you were out there in London on Wednesday. You sent across some some great footage. There were interviews with teachers there, massive crowds, great picket signs. And listeners will have heard some of the clips there in the intro. What was it like out there? Um, it was It was pretty incredible, to be honest. I think, you know, on the day, NEU said they were expecting around 10 to... I think it was around 10 to 12,000 to turn up. Um, and in the end, they had 40 to 50,000. Um, so I went to the picket line at a school in Streatham, first thing. Got up at eight, it was very, very cold. Um, so Dr. Mary Bowster was there, so Joint General Secretary of the NEU. Um, and so we did some interviews with her, chatted to some of the people on the picket line. And then... I mean, it was it was pretty amazing. I mean, you know, it it felt like the morale was quite high. You had kids kind of shouting to the other side of the gate, saying like, "Oh yes, miss!" Like, oh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and then I headed down to Portland Place uh, by the BBC, and yeah, <laughs> tens of thousands of people there. Um, and it wasn't just NEU; it was PCS as well. People from there, um, and actually a lot of a lot of parents out with their kids in solidarity with the teachers. Um, which I thought was pretty incredible to see because I think, you know, and I, I spoke to them um, about Gillian Keegan, you know, Education Secretary, about her comments that teachers were letting down um, kids. And I think obviously it's going to be mixed opinions on this. A lot of parents probably feel the same way, but those ones certainly did it. And they said, you know, they thought their teachers were amazing and they were out there to, to support them fully. Um, but yeah, and then marched down to Westminster outside Downing Street and 
I think we got to Westminster and they said there were still people backed all the way up to Portland Place. Um, so just to give an idea of the scale of how many people were there. But yeah, it was pretty incredible. Yeah, you said the, um, the you know, there was quite a positive atmosphere really, wasn't there? But of course there was, there was an element of anger, I suppose, directed towards Gillian Keegan, I felt quite a lot. Because like you said, she had come out with some fairly disparaging comments just prior to the, the strikes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she, she seemed to keep quite quiet, to be honest, up until kind of a week before when I think she realised maybe these strikes were actually going to be going ahead. Um, and she seemed to wake up to the fact. But yeah, so obviously, like, like I said, the, the night before she'd said that, you know, chiefs going out on strike were letting kids down and especially in the context of the pandemic. Um, so there was quite a lot of anger, I think, you know, and a lot of the people there, I know, you know, Dr. Mary Bowstead and all the people marching felt like she was, I think they feel like Gillian's trying to, like, trying to portray them as the bad guys in this situation, um, you know, letting kids down, walking out. And I think, you know, a lot of them had the same things to say as well. It's not just about pay. It's about, you know, the underfunding of schools over years and years. And all of them, all of the, the teachers I spoke to out there were there for the kids as well, which, you know, really seemed to come through in a lot of the messaging. Of course, it, it wasn't just London. We also had John Roberts out in Halifax. We had protests just outside of our offices in central Sheffield too. Callum, what was the impact of teacher strikes on schools in England and Wales like? Yeah, so I think we saw quite a range, actually, um, in terms of some schools were fully shut, some were open. Um, and it seemed like the, the most common thing with the, with the um, heads that I spoke to was schools being partly open. So open for some pupils. And in terms of which those pupils were, I think heads generally followed the guidance they had been given by the DfE, which was to prioritise vulnerable pupils first and then also sort of exam cohorts. Um, so, so what we saw perhaps on the ground in schools was that they were open for those vulnerable pupils, perhaps for sort of childcare or or helping the the exam cohorts do like study. Um, but what they couldn't offer in a lot of cases was sort of the full teaching sort of schedule that they would that they would normally offer. So I think schools were were open most in in some capacity, um, but but it was nothing like a, a normal school day or anything like that. But I spoke to a lot of heads actually as well about what they plan to do. So next time, obviously, you mentioned at the start, there are it's going to be several days of this action. And I think what a lot of heads were saying was that this was sort of a like a, a test process, a learning experience, and it will maybe mean that they can offer perhaps a little bit more in some cases in future times. But you've got to be erring on the side of caution. Really, you can't say that your school is fully open, get the pupils in, and then actually there's um there's actually far less stuff than you expected. Yeah, we, um, we mentioned this before on the podcast, but academies weren't actually required to report their anticipated operational status, were they? And that was a fact that seemed to surprise the education secretary, right? Yeah, I think so. I think Matilda's done quite a lot of writing on this, but I think that that's right. Um, schools didn't always know how many people would be on strike, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I think the thing that Gillian Keegan was um, surprised about was that teachers don't have to tell the head teacher they're going on strike. Um, you know, but would have thought that you know she would have be, been aware of that. But you know, obviously, she's been quite outspoken about you know how she thought teachers 
you know, would be more responsible if they had let their head teachers know and kind of praise those who who had. Um, but you know, the reality is that you know employees do not have to tell employers that they're they're going on strike. And I think the unions would argue that this is so you know disruption is is created, which I guess is the the purpose of of a strike. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's something that Gillian Keegan you know might might be looking at at trying to 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 sort but we we don't know how she kind of go about that yeah i think that's absolutely right i think there's there was sort of trails the days after um in some of the papers that they were looking at sort of possibly even changing that that rule so that um teachers might have to tell tell her teachers if they were going on strike but how they go about that really remains to be seen i mean it's it's not just teachers that this applies to, it's unions generally. So you'd be looking at a big piece of legislation. The next strikes are in less than four weeks away. So how you get that through um, and in place before the next strike, I think that's most people I've spoken to, policy experts, suggested that it seems at best very unlikely that that's going to happen. Yeah, I think, yeah, very, very unlikely, especially before the next teacher teacher dates. Finally then, we know there are these further strike days planned. And you called this day something like a like a test or like a like a dry run almost. What are we going to be expecting to see from those further strike days? Has this first day kind of impacted negotiations at all? Well, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and one I spoke to quite a few people about yesterday, policy experts and and union leaders. Um, the honest answer, I guess, not not the best that I think no one knows. Um I think what, what the unions were sort of saying to me yesterday, what, what Jeff Barton, General Secretary Askell said, is that so far the talks haven't really been negotiations. They've just been talks. He was saying a, a negotiation is when DFE brings them to the table and then the unions can sort of accept or say, well, we sort of, that's a good starting point, but we want this. And he said at the moment, they've sort of been, there hasn't, there hasn't really been anything brought to the table. So it's not looking like on current trajectory that the next strike date will be avoided. but there's several weeks to go to go until then um whether yesterday's uh, wednesday's action sort of suggested to the dfe that support was higher than they expected that remains to be seen um but i think what what the dfe will need and this is what people i spoke to were saying yesterday what the dfe can't make the decision on their own about giving teachers more pay or or whatever they want to do because they just don't have it in their gift. They don't have the money. So really, they need to get support from the Treasury. And the people I spoke to yesterday said they might need to see if the support for teach strikes is sustained throughout several days of action. And when they see that, when they see the strength of support, there may be a shunting. But at what stage that comes, if that takes several, several strike days or not, I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, and we actually heard Dr. Mary Bowsted say something similar to Jeff Barton there when she spoke to you early on Wednesday morning, Matilda. I would like to see less posturing and the beginning of starting to actually really negotiate properly in good faith. We've been trying to warn the government since last July that there was a crisis building in schools and that our dispute was building as well. Uh, though we first met the Secretary of State on the 9th of January. Since then we've had two more meetings, just barely enough time to establish different positions and then the meetings have stopped. That's not how you negotiate. Yeah, and I think the story we spoke about last week with the DfE delaying its submission for teacher pay awards next year to the independent pay review body kind of plays into this as well. What you were saying, Callum, about you know talking to the Treasury 
about the possibility of more money. You know, they said that they delayed their submission because of, you know, ongoing conversations about affordability across across the different departments. So it sounds like maybe there are conversations happening, but we don't know which way they'll go. Um, and I think another thing to mention as well, looking forward at future strike dates is, you know, we could have more people joining up with the NEU um, before then. We know that, you know, I think it was something like 40,000 new members over the past two weeks. We could have even more joining up before before the end of February. Um, but another another side of it might be that, you know, the, the longer these strike dates go on, could people start, I mean, a few people I spoke to the other day said that they had early career teachers who wanted to be out on strike that day, but couldn't actually afford to be because of, of the loss of, of, of pay for the day. So whether that starts having a knock-on impact on, on people wanting to go on strike, that loss of, of pay, um, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. The, the other thing to add to that as well, Ms. I actually spoke to one head on the day whose school was not closed at all, was entirely open. And I said, do you expect that to be the case for Al? And he said, I hope so. And I think that that may well be the case. But there's also the extra factor is if some of the other unions reballot, um, they could they could join the strike action too, which could change things as well. Um, but But that's very much an open question at the moment, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so lots to look ahead to on this one. Uh, The negotiations, the future strike days. Uh, Of course, this story and any coming in the future will be available on our website, tes.com forward slash magazine. Thanks, Matilda and Callum, for joining me today. Thanks very much. Up next, I'm joined by Senior Editor Dan Worth as we discuss how schools can up their cybersecurity so that they don't become victims of a cyber attack. Hi Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Hi there. So today, Dan, we're going to be talking about cybersecurity in schools. Now, I think schools can often find themselves particularly vulnerable to cyber attacks, and that's because they hold a lot of personal data, staff, pupils, parents, and also because they don't they often don't have the kind of funding behind cybersecurity to protect them. They've got a lot of old machines, old accounts, old practices that can leave them quite vulnerable. Mm. And that's, that's what happened in the case of Kellett School, isn't it? Their head, Mark Steed, has written an article for Tess today about a cyber attack on his school and the lessons they've learned from that. Can you take us through what happened there at that Kellett School then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Kellett School, um, the uh, British International School, and in Hong Kong, so the international school here, but the, the lessons are absolutely universal, as you sort of alluded to. Um, so their school in October 2020, as he explains in this article, was hit by a ransomware attack, um, which meant that their a group of their, or sorry, their whole IT system, effectively, their whole network system was was taken over um, and, and potentially at risk of being locked down and unavailable. And when you really think about um, how much data then was at risk, you know, assessment data, pupil data, pay data of staff, emails, HR system, all this stuff was suddenly un- or potentially unavailable. And he explains they were very lucky because it was only about six months before the attack happened. They'd actually moved a lot of their services into the cloud, so were off the network and therefore un- unaffected. They could continue a form of teaching and learning and send emails and do registers, regis- registers and things like that. However, it still meant a lot of their other issues, uh, a lot of their other data and things like finance and HR were, were disrupted and took a, at least two weeks to sort of get it all back from the hackers. They didn't end up paying the ransom, so they were lucky there. But the, the article is a really powerful reminder, really, of the risks that schools face in ransomware. And, you know, anyone can be here at any time. 
um, these things have a way of finding their own ways into systems, you know, through phishing attacks, through, you know, weak, weak systems and whatnot. And Mark, in the article, not only talks about what happened and is quite candid about it, then also offers up some what they, what they did after, you know, what they learned from that, how they needed to step up their game in their cyber defences, which also is a very interesting part of the article. Yeah, he, he used that as that attack as motivation, didn't he, to kind of completely review their cybersecurity and even aim to acquire like data management accreditation that would mean mm. they were prepared for any of these future attacks. Can you explain the importance of creating and implementing a comprehensive cybersecurity policy in schools? Yeah, I think I think Mark sort of does a really good job there because he, he breaks down six key steps. And and again, you know, in some ways, none of it's rocket science, right? It's not like this isn't you don't need to be an absolute cyber whiz to get what he's talking about here. It's more about what do senior leaders in schools need to do. So, you know, setting the tone of cybersecurity is important, it has to start from the top. It's having policies and then making sure they're followed up, make sure staff understand their responsibility. You know, the PC talks about how the hackers got in. And it was through a member of staff's error, you know, and and an and easy one to make, but it but nonetheless, that's how it happened. Um, and he even talks about things like cyber insurance and support from you know, trained professionals, i.e. they've got a retainer now with a company that they can call on when they need it. There's an, a thing called um, the Ukraine National Cybersecurity Center has resources you can use, and he suggests using them to sort of test your own defenses and so forth. So there's lots of practical things you can do, but it's also about leaders setting the example, making it clearly important on the agenda. And I do think, you know, I mean, I actually formerly was a technology journalist. I know how widespread cybersecurity issues are. They're only going to become more prevalent. You know, Microsoft this week, so they are tracking something like over 50 different types of ransomware out on the internet. Schools are at risk here, you know, as much as anyone else. And it's very easy to think, particularly if you're, you know, a small primary or, you know, a mat with a couple of schools, you think, well, surely no one's going to come after us. But, you know, you've got vital data. That if, and imagine if you couldn't access it. Imagine if a hacker did get in, what would it be like? How would you say, explain to your governors, to your parents, to the government even, that we've lost all this data or it's now on the open market? Really important to think about. Really important to think about in terms of what would you do? How can you stop it? And how would you get everyone in the school to recognise that importance? And it's not an easy job, right? It's not like you wouldn't set a curriculum once and go, well, that's job done. You have to come back to it again and again and same thing here. And that's, that's hard work, but very important. Yeah, it can feel quite uh, overwhelming, can't it, when you think about all of these risks that are out there. But Mark does go through this, like his process, step by step here, and it really shows that you can break it down into these kind of easy, easy steps. But one of the, the things you mentioned there really early on is the importance of kind of total buy-in, like buy-in from top down, but also kind of on an individual level as well. It needs, you know... Because one person not changing a password or leaving a machine unlocked or clicking that suspicious link can be the vulnerability that lets an attack in. So it's important to have these procedures in place that let everyone make sure they're doing the right things every day, basically. Yeah, yeah. And hard to do that. I mean, because you have got to repeat that message. You've got to make sure people are aware. They know what the latest risk is. You know, there's some new form of clever way that hackers are trying to trick people. You know, now it's a postal scam now it's a coronavirus scam now it's a phishing link about a missing student you know what i mean you just they're all they're all they're always trying to think of ways to, to you know trick people and so you've got to keep reminding your staff to be on their game which is hard you know it's four o'clock on a friday you're just about to get leave the day an email pops in oh yeah right click that Probably, you know you've created a problem but so you've got to be on there but at least if you have the other things in place as well it should give you more backup that if that you know unwitting staff member does something wrong you're not then immediately exposed, which is a little bit what he, what kind of Mark kind of admits happened here. He didn't take, it wasn't much for them to get into their systems because they hadn't really 
addressed it properly. But with the work they've done now, hopefully they, they are more secure. And indeed, other schools can follow the examples you're saying. That's you know, what you've got to do, really. Yeah, I guess it's hard to know where to start. But one of the last points Mark makes is there are experts out there as well. Mm-hmm. They can come in and do an audit and you can use that as the basis for, for improving your cybersecurity. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to get, if you don't know what you're doing, get someone, an expert in, right? That's what you do in most other fields, you know, with your, with your electricity or whatever, you wouldn't just try and do yourself. So I think, you know, it may cost a bit upfront, but but that's a hell of a saving long-term if it stops you being a victim. Um, so yeah, that's that's a really good point. You know, get someone in to get them to look at your systems. And if they say, you know, you realize this is completely insecure or you really need to get two-factor authentication and we can help with that, whatever it might be. And most schools probably do have someone they can go to, or if they're in a trust, the trust should be able to do that for them, whatever it might be. But the point is, if you're not talking about this or you haven't talked about it for 12 months or you're not thinking about it much because you think, oh, it won't happen to us. This article, hopefully, is a really powerful example of why it might happen to you. You don't want it to happen to you. And here's how you could hopefully stop it happening to you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So if you've been listening now and you're you're interested in shoring up your school's cybersecurity, this example from, from Mark is a, is a great one. The article's really interesting. Do make sure to go and check it out, as always, on our website, tes.com forward slash magazine. Dan, thank you again for joining me today. No problem.